This is the timeline on the screen that illustrates how our local church here understands end time events. When I teach, I have that timeline in mind. It is the doctrinal position of this church that that is the way things will occur. We might be wrong, but that's where we're sitting at right now. And so that might be helpful to you to know that this is how I understand things. That there is a church age that's going to come to a conclusion with the rapture of the church, the catching up of the saints into heaven. So we're going to be in heaven during this seven-year tribulation period. Then we will return with Jesus at the second coming. There will be a millennial reign on earth with Jesus ruling from Jerusalem for a thousand years. That will end with a rebellion that is suppressed. The great white throne of judgment will occur. And then the eternal state. When we read about something in the Bible that is uh, basically straightforward, like Daniel in the lion's den, you know, we understand what happened. And so it's easy for us to apply that to our lives to see how that is applicable. For example, Daniel in the lion's den, he, he stood up for his faith and uh, doing so was not only unpopular, but very dangerous and he could have actually lost his life. When he was thrown into the lion's den, they threw him in there expecting him to be killed. So uh, God delivered Daniel. But the practical application is that all of us should stand, uh, stand fast in our faith for God, whether God delivers us or whether he doesn't deliver us, it's the right call. And so you can see just something very simple in the Bible, something that's very straightforward, how we can understand it so it's so easy for us to apply it to our lives. Well, with Bible prophecy, we, it can be so involved that by the time we have worked through uh, what it actually means, the application kind of gets lost in the mail. And uh, so what I've been trying to do, and, and I realize that this is our fourth week studying the Olivet Discourse, uh, but what I have been trying to do is uh, systematically walk us through the meaning of this prophecy together so that all of us can connect the dots. And by being able to do that, all of us can see the application. So that's my goal. And I know that we've spent some time talking about some of these key pieces or components that all come into play when you approach something in the Bible that has to do with the future. And so uh, it's been my objective, whether I have been successful or not, for us to uh, walk through the meaning so that we all grasp that and that you're not just taking my word for something or blowing off what I'm saying or you know, that you've actually connected the dots for yourself so that you are right there, we're all right there together, and then we can move into the application. The first thing we did was we looked at the Old Testament chronology of what's going to happen in the future. We looked at Daniel 9 and Isaiah 61 and Jeremiah 30 and uh, Zechariah 14. Uh, there's many, many other places we could have went to, but we went to these places over the past few weeks showing that this is the chronology 
of what's taught in the Bible. The Bible tells us that this is what's going to happen. So whether you're reading Daniel or Jeremiah or Isaiah or any of the minor prophets, when you're reading it, this is the framework of what's being discussed. It's very important for us to understand. It begins with Jerusalem falling sometime in the future and Israel is going to repent. God's going to come to the rescue. God's going to judge his enemies. And then Israel's king is going to establish his throne here on earth. Why did we spend so much time talking about this Old Testament chronology? Because it is the foundation. The prophecy that we're studying is standing on top of that foundation. You have to understand that before you can move forward. It is foundational. And so the next thing we did is we looked at the outline of the Olivet Discourse. And there's the outline. Why did we do that? We did that because how important it is for us to be able to visualize the entire discourse as a whole. Once you can do that, then you can actually see what the central message is. You have to be able to see it as a whole. I, I, I remember when we first started in the Gospel of Mark, and I said, you know, read it through, read it through. Read it several times through. Read it every day. And what's going to happen is you're going to be able to, to see the themes and the, the things that repeat in the Gospel of Mark over and over again. And so uh, it's, uh, you read the Bible like a love letter, you know, or a Dear John letter. If someone, if someone that you're in love with sends you a letter, you don't read half of it and then put it down, you know. You read all of it, and you read it all very carefully. And so uh, when you, you see the Olivet Discourse as a whole, you can get a better handle at uh, the big picture. And so what is it telling us? You can see just from the outline that what is central there is at the beginning of birth pains, the great tribulation, and this culminates with the Son of Man returning. That's the gist of what is being discussed in the Olivet Discourse. And so what it's talking about is that there is a future period of time that Jesus is comparing to a woman in labor. And so there's a future period of time that is being compared to a woman in labor. And so the third thing we did is we identified what that period of time. We want to know what this period of time is that Jesus is talking about. And so we spent some quite a bit of time doing that. Why do we need to go to that much trouble? Why did, you know, I get out all the charts and, you know, why did we go all that trouble? Well, the primary reason is because God doesn't want us to be confused. One of the biggest points, primary objectives Jesus had in the Olivet Discourse was to keep the disciples from being confused, from confusing A.D. 70 with what he was talking about. God doesn't want the disciples to be confused any more than he wants us to be. And so uh, you can, if, if I had lived through World War II, I would have thought, hmm, this looks an awful lot like what Jesus was talking about. But it wasn't. It wasn't the end. So God doesn't want us to be confused. So if, if the Bible is specific enough for us to know what this end period of time is, if it's specific enough for, actually, for us to actually be able to say this is what he's talking about, then it is our responsibility 
to study, to show ourselves approved, to rightly divide the word of truth. It falls on us to be, and, and obviously as we look at this foundational uh, Old Testament chronology, and we begin to read what Jesus is talking about, and we have in mind things that are in Daniel, and things that are in Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the book of Revelation, and First and Second Thessalonians, we start to realize that what Jesus is talking about is inseparably connected with the rest of Scripture. And so it's very important for us to identify what this period of time is that Jesus is talking about. So we did that. We realized that He's talking about a tribulation period in the future that lasts seven years. And this period of time occurs at the end of a larger interval of time between Jesus' departure and Jesus' return. So we know that Jesus left and we know He's going to come back. Well, He hasn't came back yet. So we're in a very long interval of time. We don't know what the end is. It's almost been 2,000 years now. But at the end, right before He returns, there's a seven-year period of time. And so that is what He is describing. And so uh, last Sunday, we went through these points uh, to flesh that out. Why we know this uh, definitively from the Bible. The very first one, that the fall in A.D. 70 isn't the end. That was the primary point, not to be confused. Labor is a closed system. We talked about uh, how much I know about labor. Marsha made sure I was reminded that I don't really know what I'm talking about. Um, uh, but uh, I do know that labor has a specific beginning and a specific ending. And that the pains increase in severity and they get closer together. But at no point is any part of the labor pleasant. It's a tough time. Why is it important for us to recognize that labor is a closed system? It's because it's not ambiguous, you know. Pregnancy is not labor. False labor is not labor. You know, uh, it is this very specific, identifiable period of time. And once the Bible has explained what that period of time is, we see that it's uh, very detailed exactly what it is. So uh, we notice how uh, in our text that we're talking about Israel. We're not talking about the church. We're not talking about deacons and elders and uh, you know, this is, this is Judea, Jerusalem, the temple, synagogue, Sanhedrin, Sabbath. This is Israel. And uh, we noticed how the tribulation is for Israel. Now, what do I mean by that? You've all heard the verse that God does all things for good for those who love Him. For those who are called according to His purpose. You see... Uh, the tribulation, God's primary objective is to purify the nation of Israel, to bring the nation of Israel to repentance, to bring the nation of Israel to faith in Him. That's what He's doing. In the process, this is a global judgment. And the Gentile nations globally are going to be judged. But the primary objective deals with Israel. 
And that's why Israel is involved here, not the church. Is the purification, the crucible that purifies the nation of Israel is what is at stake here. And so the tribulation we saw last seven years, and we looked at uh, Daniel's prophecy of 70 weeks, and uh, we looked at something in Revelation, and we can see that it's a seven-year period, and right in the middle is this abomination of desolation, right in the middle. So if our math is any good, you can divide seven in half, so 3.5, three and a half years, and three and a half years. Midway is this abomination of desolation. Our final point was that the labor that is described in the Olivet Discourse parallels how the tribulation is described in the book of Revelation. And last Sunday, we did not have time to go into that. So we're going to briefly look at how they are, this, are so similar and parallel each other. And once we have hopefully accomplished that, I think that we will be, maybe be able to begin to look at how this actually applies to us, the church. And so I've asked you to turn in your Bible to the, to the book of Revelation. And uh, again, if, if, the, if the conclusions that we've made so far are correct, we should be able to see that as we look at this very detailed book of this period of time. The book of Revelation in chapter 1 opens up with the Apostle John. He's an old man. And he's been exiled to the island of Patmos. And uh, he's, it's Sunday morning and he's praying. And the risen Christ appears to him. But it's not the risen Christ that he saw before he ascended. It's the real risen Christ in his, all of his glory. And it was absolutely terrifying. And John fell on his face. I love the things that Jesus says about himself in verse 8. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The one who is, who was, and who is coming. Look at verse 17. He says, he says, I fell to his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and he said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. And then in verse 19, he outlines the entire book. He tells us everything that's going to happen. He says, write down what is and what will take place. Here's the outline right here. Let me put it up for you. He says, therefore, write what you have seen. What's been what you're seeing right now. So when, when John actually puts a pen to paper, he's going to write down about what's happening here with him and Jesus and what Jesus told him. So write down what you have seen and then write down what is. Because in chapters 2 and 3, and just move with me, if you will, as you move through chapters 2 and chapter 3, 
John writes a let seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. That's what is the church. And then beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, John is caught up into heaven. Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And so you can follow the outline right there very simply. Write down what, what, is, what you have seen. Write down what is, these letters to the churches. And now write down what must take place after this. There in chapter 4, verse 1. So this is the beginning of the uh, future aspect of the book of Revelation. And you can see there that beginning with chapter 4, verse 1, what will take place after this, so we begin to move through three major components. The tribulation for chapters 4 through 19, then the millennium in chapter 20, and finally the eternal state in chapters 21 through 22. Now, the book of Revelation is extremely intimidating uh, to everyone. If it doesn't intimidate you, then there's something wrong with you. But uh, it, uh, there's a, a number of things that you have to hurdle and wrestle with with this book. One of them is that the, the book moves back and forth from earth to heaven. So John's on earth in chapter 1, but he's in heaven too in a vision. And in chapters 2 and 3, he's on earth. In chapters 4 and 5, he's back in heaven. Chapter 6, we're back down on the earth again. And so there's some movement. And uh, I appreciate it so much because we get to see things that are happening in heaven. Uh, that there's a whole reality that we don't see that's very real. And so I really like that. It's one of the reasons I love the book of Ezekiel so much because we get to see what's really going on. You know, we think this is it, but this is nothing. This is not it, you guys. And so uh, the book of Revelation has this movement back and forth from heaven and earth. And then, of course, there's symbolism throughout. Uh, but the good news is that almost all of it has been interpreted and explained for us in the book itself. Other places in the Bible help us with things that aren't explained in the book itself, but many of these things are actually explained. And so you read through it and you can get a little bit overwhelmed, but you just have to slow down and take your time. As a matter of fact, some of the things that John was seeing in chapter 1, Jesus says, this is what that meant. This is what the lampstands are. This is what the stars are. And so the Revelation does have a lot of symbolism, but a lot of the legwork is already done for us. And then finally, probably the most difficult part is the chronology. As we move through the book, you know, uh, is it happening in chronological order or is it talking about something and then it backwards up and gives you more detail or, you know, where's all of this falling together? How does this all work, you know? And so that's a very uh, challenging aspect. Well, the, uh, the tribulation... Uh, as you saw in the outline, it's chapters 4 through 19 in the book of Revelation. And let me go back to that. Just uh, As you look at this outline of Revelation, we're studying the Olivet Discourse. So where, where are we concerned with? The Tribulation. The Olivet Discourse is concerned with the Tribulation. And in the book of Revelation... Uh, the, the tribulation unfolds uh, with seven seals and then seven trumpets and then seven bowls. So just think about these 
very basic key building blocks that we have as we approach the subject. We know that the tribulation period is seven years long. Right in the middle is the abomination of desolation. The first half is the beginning of birth pains. And the last half is the great tribulation. Then drop like a blanket over the top of that. Drop like a blanket over the top of that seven year period. How the book of Revelation unfolds it is seven seals, seven trumpets, and then seven bowls. The trick is how to fall and drop that blanket over what we already have studied and know from the Olivet Discourse. It's a tricky deal. Um, some people see these things unfolding simultaneously. They're all happening at once. The people who think that it happens all at once, most of the time think that the six seals, seven seals open, and then the trumpets and the bowls are kind of overlapping. Others see these things happening successively, one after another. And I will tell you that from what I understand, given the fact that I could absolutely be wrong, uh, from what I understand, these seven series of seven, these three series of sevens happen successfully, successionally, one after another. One happens and then the next. And so it's chronological in a, a sequential order chronologically in a successive uh, steps. Uh, why do I think that? Well, instead of making it super complicated, for me it's easy because the seals introduce the trumpets and then the trumpets introduce the bowls. Now, the way this plays out is that uh, there will be six seals opened. And after the sixth seal is open, there's like this parenthesis of time. There's a gap. There's an interval of time. And some stuff happens there. We're told about some things. And then the seventh seal is opened. And when it's opened, this begins the sounding of the seven trumpets. And so the seven trumpets go. So after the sixth trumpet, there's this parenthesis. There's interval of time. And a lot of stuff is introduced to us. And then the seventh trumpet is open. And when the seventh trumpet opens, we have seven bowls. And there's no gap or parenthesis or break in the action with the bowls. And from the text, it gives us every impression that these bowls are rapid fire, one after another. As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 15, verse 1, it says that the bowls are the last of the seven, or the last seven plagues. And so this gives us the impression that these happen successfully, success, uh, one after, I can't even say that word today, uh, they happen one after another. Now obviously I could be wrong, and, but, and I'm very uh, conscientious about teaching the Bible, and so um, I want to apologize if I am to you and to God, but uh, I've studied this for a long time, and uh, other men and women who have studied this for a long time see it different than me. Um, so just because I've studied doesn't mean I'm right, but I have made an effort to understand this, and this is what I see happening. Now, uh, the, the tribulation, as we talked about, uh, the duration is seven years. Right in the middle is this abomination of desolation. 
And so in this first half, we have wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, plagues, persecutions, earthquakes. This is the beginning of the birth pains. And then after this, we have the abomination of desolation and then cataclysmic things begin to happen. Matthew describes the second half as the great tribulation. So in, the, in, the, in Mark chapter 13, where you're not at in your Bible, but in Mark chapter 13, verse 7, uh, Jesus is talking about the wars, the rumors of wars, and the, and the nation will rise up against nation. Uh, there'll be persecution, famine, he, he's, earthquakes, there'll be all these things. And he says, but don't be alarmed because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. Verse 8, these things are the beginning of birth pains. Okay? And then after this is the, the abomination of desolation, which marks the, the beginning of the second half. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 20, in Mark, in Mark it just says, and then this, the remaining, the tribulation. But Matthew gives the greater detail because in verse 21 of Matthew 24, he says, great tribulation. Okay? And so... Uh, in this second half, we begin to see cataclysmic events that we'll talk about briefly here in just a minute. But some of the things that are described in the Olivet Discourse are the sun and moon being darkened and stars falling. So uh, Revelation tells us just a whole lot more is going to happen than that. But it uh, gives you the idea that things are going to get really bad. An unprecedented time, uh, worse than anything that's ever happened in the world before. Nothing's ever been like this before. Nothing will ever be like it again. It's Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7. We looked at that. So if we are correct about this, seven years of the abomination in the middle, beginning of birth pains, great tribulation, and then we begin to drop this blanket of seals, trumpets, and bowls over the top of this picture. How does it fall? How do they align? How do those seals, trumpets, and bowls fall into this continuum? It's a good question. <laughs> so this is uh, uh, chapter 6. So chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation are uh, in heaven. And there's this huge dilemma about who can open up these uh, the seals. And God the Father hands... A, a scroll that has seven seals on it. He hands the scroll to Jesus. So Jesus is the one who's worthy to open these seals that are on this scroll. And so in chapter 6, we begin to see the beginning of these things being opened. So the seals begin to open in chapter 6. As we move through the book of Revelation, you know, we, will, we will see the trumpets open and then we will see the bowls open. And it all culminates in chapter 19 when Jesus returns. So what I wanted to do is I put this up on the screen. On your bulletin in the back, you also have this uh, so that you'll be able to take it home. And what I wanted to do is show you how the... Things that Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse parallel how these seals are being opened. And this helps us to know where these things fall into the chronology. How am I doing? Okay. Um, so, I'm trying not to... I'm trying to... 
Okay, so the first seal uh, in, in, Mark, in Revelation chapter 6 parallels what's being described in Mark chapter 13, verse 6. And I've got that written up there. It's, uh, the first seal is a, is a rider on a white horse. A, white, a rider on a white horse. And some have confused him with Jesus, but it's just a little bit too early for Jesus to be showing up at the beginning of things. He comes at the end. So it's not Jesus. It's actually the Antichrist. Um, uh, you'll remember that in the Olivet Discourse, one of the very first things that Jesus warns us of is, is being deceived. Deception. And it says that there will be many who come to be false messiahs. Don't be deceived. They'll say, He's over here. It's I am He. Do not be deceived. And so... In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus begins to introduce the concept that this, thing's, this period of time is going to open with a lot of deception, a false Messiah. And it gets very specific in Revelation chapter 6 because we find out that there's going to be one guy who's going to be very successful as a false Messiah. And he is described as having uh, a crown and a conqueror. But he has a bow with no arrows. And so this gives us the idea that he has been able to uh, conquer a, with a bloodless victory. The bow is a threat of war, but he hadn't had to use them. No arrows. And so almost all folks, uh, men and women who study the book of Revelation, is just a real consensus that this is talking about the Antichrist. And it works in concert with what we know that's going to happen from other great details uh, elsewhere in Scripture, but also in the book of Revelation, that the, the period of time in the beginning, is it time to stop? We're going to break. We're going to start. <laughs> so uh, we know that in the beginning of the Revelation, uh, this tribulation period, that there is peace. There's actually a peace in the Middle East, and the Antichrist strikes a deal and, and uh, uh, makes a treaty with Israel. It's not until the midway point, the abomination of desolation, when this treaty is broken and violated by the Antichrist. And so, uh, right off the bat, we can see that the Olivet Discourse is talking to us about false messiahs and deception. And at the beginning of the tribulation in chapter 6 of Revelation, we see that this very first horse is a false messiah who will conquer and take control without war. The second seal is a red horse, and it brings war. And you'll remember in the Olivet Discourse, there are wars and rumors of wars, and nation will rise up against nation. And so as we read through here at the second, the second seal, uh, we see war. The, fine, the third one is a black horse, and it brings famine. So uh, as we look at the Olivet Discourse, as it's unraveled in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13... This period of time uh, with famine is accompanied by earthquakes and plagues. Luke uses the word plagues, which is only Luke introduces that. But the uh, book of Revelation really camps out on the fact that there's going to be great famine. Now remember why we're doing this. We're trying to figure out how these things fall into the continuum of our seven-year period that we've already identified. The fourth seal is death. It is a pale horse. 
And for me, this is the one that is the most difficult to plug into the Olivet Discourse. Because in the book of Revelation, it's chapter 6, verse 8, it tells us that there's going to be death, but the death is going to come from war and famine and plagues and wild beasts. And it's going to be so bad that one-fourth of the world's population is going to die. So by the time we have moved into this fourth seal, this pale horse, this rider on a pale horse and death, one-fourth of the world's population dies. And so what is generally, I, I wrote down Mark 13 verse 12 there for the sword because it talks about war. But the general idea is that how this parallels the Olivet Discourse is that the, the, the things that are happening, the earthquakes, the plagues, the famine, and the wars cause death. And so that is absolutely what the book of Revelation is explaining to us in greater detail that there's going to be an incredible amount of people die at the hands of swords, the war, famine, plagues, and wild beasts. Wild beasts, that's another thing to talk about. But uh, the fifth seal is martyrdom in the book of Revelation and in the Olivet Discourse we see a lot of talk about persecution. And so uh, the book of Revelation is focusing strictly on uh, people who, who die for their faith. And so I hope you can remember how the, the Olivet Discourse begins with this birth pains. Wars and rumors of wars, there will be famines, earthquakes, persecution, you begin to see how this is aligning with these seals as they open. Well, in your bulletin and on the, on the chart there, I have the abomination of desolation occurring someplace after this fifth seal. And I do that because of what happens in the sixth seal. The sixth seal is so crazy that it has to be in the second half. In the Olivet Discourse, it happens in the second half. And so, as I drop my blanket down, I'm having the sixth trumpet fall on this side of the abomination of desolation and trumpet number or seal number five dropping on the beginning of birth pains. This is where I see them separating. Let me show you why. Because as you read the book of Revelation and you compare with what's told in the, in the Olivet Discourse, when this sixth seal opens, it is an earthquake that we've never seen before. It is a, a global earthquake. A great earthquake. It actually moves the mountains and moves the islands. It says that the sun and the moon will be darkened. Stars are going to fall. You see. Cataclysmic events. This is placed after the abomination of desolation in the Olivet Discourse. And so I think as we look at these seven seals, we pretty much have to move seal number six into the second half. I hope that makes sense. Now, remember what I told you is how... Uh, are you guys still with me? Alright. So, um, I'm, remember it's seals, trumpets, and bowls. <laughs> seals, trumpets, and bowls. Okay, and, then, and so we've got like the seals... Uh, after the sixth one, there's like a gap, a parenthesis. Some stuff happens. And then the seventh seal. And then you have your six trumpets, and there's a parenthesis and some stuff happens before the seventh trumpet. 
Okay? Well, in this parenthesis after this sixth trumpet, after the sixth seal, uh, 144,000 Jewish people are sealed and set apart from the 12 tribes of Israel for evangelism on the earth. And this can parallel easily with this phrase that's in the Olivet Discourse of the proclamation of the gospel. And so God is talking about how this period of time, there's going to be evangelism. There are going to be people who will repent and put their faith in Christ during the tribulation period. Some will survive and some will not. And so finally, there's a seventh seal. And it's kind of amazing because if, if, you, if you read it, it just blows you away what's going on in heaven. And it just seems so noisy. There's so much activity and, and life. And, and, but when the seventh seal is open, there's absolute silence in heaven. And it opens the trumpets. I want to give you one more reason why I'm moving seal number six on the other side of the abomination of desolation. That's because of the severity of the judgments that follow. If, if we take, for example, the fourth seal, which was death, a quarter of the planet has died. That's a lot of people. A quarter of the planet has died. By the time you get to the sixth trumpet, one-third of everybody else left has died. So one quarter and then one-third of that basically means one-half of the world's population has died by the sixth trumpet. This fits what's described as Jacob's trouble. There's none like it. This fits what is described in the Olivet Discourse as an unprecedented, unparalleled time that is the worst period of time in world history. And so we see these things occurring on the second half, why the tribulation has all of a sudden turned into a very great tribulation. Well, we've talked about the tribulation here uh, enough to where I'm kind of tired of saying the word, <laughs> but uh, the, the tribulation is a seven year period of time that happens at the end of this long interval of time between Jesus' departure and Jesus' return. And we know that this period of time is, is global and that all of the Gentile nations are going to be judged. Especially in how they've treated Israel. Remember Romans chapter 11 says, do not become arrogant. You don't support the root, the root supports you. I love the nation of Israel. I hope you do too. tribulation period we know is going to be a period of time when God is going to purify the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel you see today is not the one you'll see at the end. Well, uh, the last two Sundays I've asked this question, where is the church in all of this? The Olivet Discourse does not answer that question. What we do see in Mark chapter 13 is that the attention is upon Israel and not the church. 
Does that mean that the church is on earth? Maybe. Does it mean they're in heaven? Maybe. We know for a fact that the Olivet Discourse is trying to tell us that this is a period of time when God is very much giving Israel His attention. The book of Revelation makes that crystal clear. Because you won't hear anything about the church in Revelation until after, once chapter 3 is over. Chapters 2 and 3 is about what is the church age, the church. Chapters 2 and 3, you hear all about the church. You will not hear about them again until the very end. There's a reason for that. We expect the church to be in heaven during the tribulation. How many guys got up there? You got that one? I think I got that one. That's, I guess, why I wanted to put up there for you. Um, I want to close this morning saying that uh, next Sunday, if everything goes as planned, we're going to be looking at the very conclusion of this period when Jesus returns. And in the process of looking at that, we will answer some questions about uh, where is the church? What's the church doing in all of this? But sometimes we can look at something that's very self-centered to us as Christians. You know, where are we? What's going to happen to America? What's going to happen to Christians? You know, and, and uh, miss something really important. And I think that is that uh, we fail possibly to look at God's relationship with Israel. Is there anything that we can learn from God's relationship with Israel? We think of all the way back in the back when God called out Abraham. He made all those promises to Abraham so long ago, you guys. It was so long ago. They didn't even have cell phones. It was a long time ago. And here we are all the way at the end of this interval of time and God is still working on Israel. What can we learn about God's relationship with Israel? We see that He loves them. And we see that He is faithful to Israel, even though Israel is not faithful to Him. We see that God disciplines those He loves. And God keeps His promises. We can learn a lot about how we're supposed to love other people by seeing how God loves Israel. Let's pray.